The Pellicle Podcast is sponsored by the wonderful folks at Rode Microphones. We've used Rode mics to make this podcast since our very first episode. I'm a big fan of the NT1, their vintage voice studio condenser, which we use for our voiceovers and narration. Recently, I've also turned to their reporter handheld mic, which is perfect for capturing interviews in the field. This introduction is being recorded using their best-selling NT-USB Mini, plus a little EQ and compression. It's a brilliant little USB mic that's perfect for improving your audio, especially your video calls. You just stick it on your desk, plug in your headphones, and sound more like you're in a studio. The NT-USB Mini is available now, and it's just £99 RRP. Go check it out at Rode.com. Thanks again to Rode, and now, it's on with the show. Hello, welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm Matthew Curtis. Now, today we've got a really great interview between my Pellicle co-founder, Johnny Hamilton, and a regular illustrator of ours and graphic novelist, James Alban. More on that in a little while. But first, I just want to say sorry to our regular podcast listeners. I'm going to keep it brief before this interview because, as you might be able to tell, I've got a bit of a cold. I'm a bit bunged up. But I do want to say sorry for not keeping up with posting these podcast episodes regularly. It is my intent to try and get one done every three to four weeks, and I haven't done that. A couple of reasons. One is that I've got a lot busier recently. A lot of my work has picked up. I've been writing a lot of articles, so that's really great. But I've also been spending a lot of time promoting my new book, Modern British Beer which you might have heard me talk about on previous episodes, especially if you listen to episode 22, where I talk about the process of writing the book. And I did intend to produce an episode where I talk about what the book means, what it's about, and publish that to coincide with the launch of the book on August the 12th. But now it's October the 13th when I'm recording this, so I'm a bit behind on that. But that's still my intent. I've got lots of really great episodes in the can. I've got some interviews, including one recorded with Mark Tranter of Burning Sky and another with Katie Mather, who is our associate editor on our team here at Pellicle and the owner of a wonderful bar called Corto, along with her husband, Tom. So they're recorded and they'll be out soon. And I'm also going to do a few more of my monologue style episodes, but the interviews are hopefully going to break those up a bit. So it's not just me talking week after week. But I also want to get you guys involved in an episode with us. I want to do a Q&A. I want you to send me in questions and then I will answer them on this podcast. And I'm not going to tweet about this. I'm not going to put it on Instagram. I want this to be something for you folks, the people who listen to the podcast. What I need you to do is come up with a question and email it to me at Matthew, that's with two T's, at PellicleMag, with two L's, dot com. Pellicle Mag, like the URL of our magazine. So I want you to email me a question about beer. It can be about something on this podcast. It can be about something that's happening in beer or cider. Cider is also good. And I will try and get through as many of those questions in an hour as I can. Give you a chance to interview me. Because as much as I enjoy talking about a subject that I'm interested in, I really like to talk about some stuff that you're interested in too. So send me your questions via email, matthew at pellicalmag.com. Please don't DM me. I get a lot of DMs. I find it really hard to keep up with my DMs on Twitter and Instagram. So do send that to my email and we'll make a Q&A episode and we'll put that in between some of the forthcoming episodes. So there's lots planned and I'm really excited about getting that out to you. Now, normally at this point of the episode, I would check in on what's happening in beer or in the drinks industry. But due to my nose and throat situation, I'm going to go straight to the interview with Johnny and I'll record an episode on modern British beer, the book available now from Camera Publishing. Once my cold subsides a little bit and I can check in then. But for now, we're going to move straight on to this interview with James Alban conducted by my Pellicle co-founder, Johnny Hamilton. Now, you may remember Johnny from some previous episodes, including the very first episode of this podcast, 
where it's just me and Johnny talking about why we set up Pellicle in the first place. And you may have heard him host some panel talks at Cloudwater's and Fine Ale's festivals in years gone by. So his dulcet Ulster tones may be familiar to you already. And he's chatting to his good friend, James Alban, who is a wonderful illustrator. Now, you might know James for his work on Pellicle in articles such as Owen Walsh's piece on Brasserie de la Seine Zinnebeer or on De Dollar Orbeer or recently on Holly Stevens' piece on catering and catharsis. He has done a lot of amazing work for us and for a lot of other people, including Camera and The Financial Times. But he's also recently released his own graphic novel, called The Delicacy, which is a wry look at the food, the restaurant industry. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about the book now because James talks about it in great detail during the interview. And Johnny and James also talk a lot about the food and restaurant industry. It's a really interesting conversation and one I hope you'll enjoy. In fact, I think the best thing to do is just plow straight into that today. And then I'll catch up with you at the end of the interview before the end of the show. Enjoy listening. So, welcome to this special edition of the Pellicle Podcast with me, Johnny Hamilton. Uh, Matthew has kindly let me take the the reins on this podcast. I featured on the first ever podcast, which was recorded in a very similar situation to this, in Matt's living room in London. And this time, it's in my living room in Edinburgh, uh, with my friend and frequent collaborator with the magazine, James Albin. Hey, how's it going? So, yeah, just wanted, considering James lives about five minute walk from my flat here in Edinburgh in Leith, I thought it'd be a good idea since he's been involved with the magazine since day one to to get him in and chat a little bit about food and drink, chat a little bit about uh, his illustration work and of course his new book, which is out called Delicacy and is about the food and drink scene, specifically in, in London. So there's a lot of different, uh, different elements of stuff that's kind of come together, and I thought it would be a cool idea to do a little podcast, and very kindly being uh, produced and not produced by my friend John Youngs, who, who told me that he specifically is not producing in any way. <laughs> um, he, he wants no responsibility for the, uh, for the following. Anything that might be said... Anything legally compromising that we might say in the course of the next hour, John is abstaining his responsibility. <laughs> and in true Pellicle style, uh, I decided that it'd be really nice to pick up some nice, uh, some nice drinks for the occasion. So I was going to head to my local shop and pick up some nice cider or wine, but they weren't open. So I went to uh, the local shop and bought some, uh, what would we call these, stubbies? Stubbies. Stubbies, stubbies. Uh, of lager. And James is hungover, so James is currently, um, I was going to say double fisting, but I'm not, <laughs> not sure if that's a correct term so to that's use. definitely not the correct term. James is currently drinking uh, a lovely cup of tea and also a can of Coca-Cola. Yeah, other, other colas are available, uh, just so you know. <laughs> um, but I actually thought that um, Stubbies would be the right choice of beverage for today because I've always known James to be interested in food and drink but I, my image of James is very much a casual glass of classic red wine in like a very specific kind of for people who've been to the restaurant I guess St John restaurant in London kind of very unpretentious wine glass of nice red wine from the shop yes a nice nice Pinot Noir in a mug yeah um, I yeah, definitely would say James's taste in, in food and drink is unpretentious and uh, I thought a stubby would definitely be the, the drink of choice. Um, so I just want to start with um, kind of a bit of your history. And so you grew up in, you're from Scotland. Yeah, my family's from uh, Cambridge originally, uh-huh. hence the accent, which uh, I'm sure will grab all listeners' ears. But I actually grew up in Aberdeenshire, so... Um, you know, grew up in the northeast of Scotland, uh, so quite in you know, quite a rural area. And then you moved to Edinburgh for art school. Yes, correct. so I studied illustration at Edinburgh College of Art, 
Uh, and then I went on to do a postgraduate in the Royal Drawing School in London. Um, and amongst that time, I sort of lived all over the world. So I lived in Hong Kong for a year with my wife, uh, who's half Hong Kong Chinese. We lived together in uh, France uh, for several years as well. So between France, Lyon, London, Hong Kong, Edinburgh, we've kind of moved around a lot. Nice. And what was it that uh, kind of inspired you to go into this, the field of... I know you've put out some graphic novels. This is your second, third graphic novel. Uh, but the most of your work tends to be, or at least what, what I see is editorial stuff. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think there's a nice balance between the two of them, actually. Um, being an editorial illustrator means quick turnarounds, it's fast deadlines, and you often work with... Of course, you work with a lot of like journalism, a lot of reportage, a lot of opinion writing... Uh, that's really based in the factual world. So you're illustrating something, often not literally but metaphorically, but you're illustrating something that sort of talks about real life that we experience. Uh, and by contrast, working on graphic novels means illustrating fiction and fiction that I write myself, which is really enjoyable to both write and illustrate. But also the nature of a graphic novel is it's a, it's a book that takes years to, to write. You From the initial sort of research and planning stages to uh, making the finished the finished artwork and having it published will be several years. So for me, I, I consider my work kind of split 50-50 between, between editorial illustration and graphic novels, but the timescales are so different. An editorial project could take three days and a graphic novel could take three years. Mm. But you, you're, not, you're not really doing work like what you're, you're the, the expert here, but like you're not really, you do some exhibiting work occasionally, but it wouldn't be your... Your, your most common kind of no. field. Ex exhibiting is something I do as well, and I do really enjoy it. Um, obviously, in the last year or so with COVID, it's really, uh, you know, gone out of the window. But, um, yeah, I do. I also do quite a lot of printmaking, which is really enjoyable. And I've been lucky enough to exhibit my work there in, in um, France and in Belgium and in the United States and had some really great experiences. And the lovely thing about exhibiting is, like, being able to travel for it as well. Um, there's always this joke that I think uh, the illustrator Chris Buzelli says regarding the sort of difference between commissioned illustration and sort of what we might call fine art that's like mm. pictures that we make and then they, they appear on a gallery wall. Because uh, some people have this idea that there's, there's some sort of rivalry between the two, but in reality, and as Chris Buzelli says, uh, the only difference between fine art and illustration is that illustration I know how much I'm going to get paid before I start drawing, <laughs> and fine art I only find out afterwards. Yeah, totally. Um, was was there like a, a point like when when you're in art school or before art school or coming out of art school where you knew that that the editorial stuff was something you'd be interested in or was it something that you did out of necessity or like making some money or was it very much like an interest you had from before? I think it's always been something I've been interested in. I think that maybe when I was in art school. I wanted to be a very sort of literary illustrator and I was very, very lucky uh, when I graduated, one of my first really, really big commissions that sort of almost set up my career was um, I illustrated the uh, the sort of epic novel Parade's End by Ford Maddox Ford mm. for the Folio Society, which was, I mean, actually still to this day, one of the largest projects I've ever done, 25 lineup art illustrations and dealing with really, really serious epic literary text mm. about the First World War and about uh, an officer's sort of struggle between uh, his relationship with battle and his relationship with home life back in England. Um, and that was really, really exhilarating. But I realised that um, there's so much, there's so much in the world, there's so many different kinds of subjects that one can speak about and write about and draw about, that actually, if I limited myself and said, oh, I only want to do literary illustrations, or I only want to do editorial illustrations, or I only want to do you know, sort of uh, beautiful packaging illustrations or something. I think being limited to any one thing would become frustrating. And what I really like about editorial illustration is that every week I'm dealing with a completely different subject. And every week you get to research new fields and you get to learn about new things. Um, and quite often you get to illustrate things that are quite serious. Like, I mean, obviously I really love making fun work and I hope my graphic novels feel fun to readers. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think around the time I graduated from Edinburgh College of Art, there was a feeling that a lot of people in the illustration world were making work that was very beautiful, but also maybe a little bit twee or a little bit cute, and that illustration existed to be sort of 
to be sort of cute. And I really felt that, you know, especially being a slightly sort of like um, contrary young man, I was like, I want to make serious illustrations about serious subjects. So I was quite drawn to editorial illustration because you can, you often find yourself working with quite serious sort of current affairs related subjects, as well as being able to do, you know, really fun food and drink related things or lifestyle things. Mm. Um, so there's a really nice breadth to the editorial illustration world. Yeah, and you, I know you've gone on to do other work for the Folio Society, kind of just looking at this right on my shelf you know, um, of Mice and Men that you did after that. And it must be something with both literary stuff and editorial. It's, uh, I think, well, we, we, we worked together quite a bit in the past, even before Pellicle stuff, that you're very good at, which is being able to understand the needs of the client very well. Uh, so like something like a classic piece of, piece of literature, obviously there's only so much room that you can have with uh, changing what character, what people think the characters look like. I mean, or of mice and men because of films, people are like, well, I know what Lenny looks like in my head. So the, 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 the writers or the, the publishers are obviously got an expectation. And we've always, I've always found that whenever we're dealing with something uh, with the magazine, I send you the, um, the rough um, outline of what we're looking to do that you're very good at coming back and kind of nailing it pretty quick on without ever being able to be like that's so far away from you know like what this is nothing you're just like did that take a long time to to under to get to that point it's that's a it's a difficult thing to explain I think to an extent like I've always been learning and I think I you know I over the last 10 years, I've got better and better at illustrating and better at writing and uh, and understanding what clients are looking for. But I think at the end of the day, uh, for me, it's very important to to keep in mind that illustration is sort of about communication and almost conversation in a way. Uh, I want, to me, being a good illustrator is similar to being like a good raconteur. It's not enough in terms of the way that we use the spoken word to communicate. It's not enough to just be a sort of a speech maker who just rambles and rants and says, talks at an audience. You want to understand what, where your audience is coming to and understand sort of how they're listening to you. And a conversation is about making connection with where you are and where the person you're speaking to is. And I really think illustration is the same. I think that you have to, when you set out to do, to draw a picture, you have to kind of understand maybe who's looking at it, what the expectations of the person looking at the picture will be, what your relationship with those people are like. And then, of course, that's something you can subvert. You can go in the opposite way from where your, where your readers or your viewers are expecting you to go. You can play on their assumptions. You can, you know, subvert their expectations. But you're always keeping in mind the sort of conversational relationship between the artist and the viewer. And for me, I think that's really important. Nice. Um, one of the questions that... Uh, one of my, well, I guess my colleagues at Pellicle, Katie Mather, wanted me to ask um, was about your inspirations and any influences that you have because you mentioned that your style is quite fluid and quite, but also with an element of with, of humour in it and uh, it's quite engaging and there's a, what were your influences or specific artists or like even an era of art that, that you're into? I think for me, I'm really... I just love figurative art. And for me, I, the sort of, an era that I love is the sort of uh, fin de siècle Parisian art. So artists like Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec uh, is amazing because he draws in such a sort of fun and loose way and he draws so much from observation. And you can tell that he's really drawing from real life experiences. He's not sort of parachuting into a, into a foreign place, but he's going to these extravagant parties and these extravagant sort of restaurants and bars and... Uh, cabarets and he's just drawing and painting what he sees there uh, and then he brings the energy and the fun that he that he has at these parties and brings that straight into his paintings so for me he's a real icon in terms of um, in terms of drawing this exciting world of, of you know having a good time uh, and a lot of that I wanted to get across in the delicacy because I'm someone who really enjoys going to uh, bars and restaurants and I wanted to be able to write a book that was about that communicated that sort of excitement of like going to a really good restaurant or going to a really good bar and like going on a really good night out and sort of wanted to get the colour and energy of that across. Nice. Um, we'll get on to the book a bit in a second, but I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, inspiration for the book and inspiration for 
illustrations in general beyond uh, other artists in that you lived in Leon for a while and I know from my own personal experience that had I not moved to Edinburgh in 2008 uh, as a, which has a rich culture of brewing and and also like distilling I don't know if I would ever become a brewer because I wasn't exposed to that sort of thing and I'm wondering if living in in France and living in Lyon, which has got a massive uh, foods uh, culture, if that kind of influenced the way you illustrated in terms of wanting to write a book about food and drink. Yeah, it definitely did. I think, I mean, I've always been interested in food, but I think as I've got older, I've, I've, I've developed a greater and greater appreciation for uh, a greater breadth of sort of flavours and also a greater appreciation of the sort of Im- amazing technical prowess of a lot of chefs. Um, Lyon is this is an incredible city for, for food, for dining out. Um, and yeah, we went to so many fantastic restaurants there. My studio in Lyon was actually next door to La Mer Brasier, uh, the old restaurant of Eugenie Brasier, who was the first person in the world to have six Michelin stars. Wow. <laughs> so, um, or to, you know, to have three Michelin stars with two separate restaurants. Uh, so there was, you know, you really felt kind of seeped in this amazing um, culinary history there. Um, and I think as well, I mean, that was also a stage in my life where my illustration career got established sufficiently that I had like that bit more disposable income as well, which mm. is obviously a big, uh, there's a, I mean, a fundamental relationship between sort of food and society and social class in a sense. And like, you know, I feel very lucky and privileged to have got to a point in my career where uh, I went from being this impoverished new graduate who's subsisting off baked beans to, to, to now being somebody who can kind of go out at weekends and spend a reasonable amount of money in a restaurant. So I think I was at, in Lyon at the right time in terms of being able to also access those sorts of restaurants that, that really influenced the book. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm the exact same with uh, living in London and starting Pellicle. You know, I would doubt, doubt I would have been able to start up because I wouldn't have an interest in the food and drink scene. I mean, I was into food and eating and, and restaurants, but nowhere near the same extent as to whenever I moved to London and started earning enough money that I could afford to eat in these places. Yeah. And then suddenly I was like, well, I want to go to a Michelin star restaurant for my birthday. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think as you, as, as, as you sort of mature, it becomes something that you want to spend money on as well. Mm. Like you, even if it's still expensive to go to a Michelin star restaurant, you have the sort of taste that will, that will appreciate it and you'll see it as a, as a worthwhile expense, even if it is more of an expense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so getting on to the book, uh, so one of the things that uh, interests me about the book is you, have you ever, you've done, done a little bit of work in hospitality in, when you were living in France and you've done a little bit of hospitality jobs, but you've never, you've not worked in kitchens per se. I've not worked in kitchens per se. I've, I've had many jobs in which I was a terrible waiter. I'm a terrible employee in general. It's, uh, you know, I'm so lucky to be able to be freelance and self-employed because I was just lazy, indolent, selfish, unhappy, just everything that you wouldn't want in a, so unenthusiastic, everything that you wouldn't want in a, in hiring a waiter for a restaurant. But I've endured uh, a reasonable number of sort of restaurants and catering type, type gigs. So uh, with, with going into that, maybe a little bit of detail about what the book's about, uh, what led you to write a book set in the restaurant scene? For me, it's, I mean, the, the great jumping off point was really just my enjoyment of restaurants. It's like to be able to, to write a book in which you can inhabit this sort of world of, uh, uh, there's a Japanese term um, Yukioi printmaking, uh, which literally translates as the floating world. And the idea that the floating world is like the the blissful world of nightlife where you go out and you go to a bar and you go to a restaurant or you go to the theatre and you are surrounded by beautiful people and everyone's laughing and joking and drinking and you're it's like you're floating mm-hmm. in this world. But at the same time, the world is illusionary. And the next morning you wake up and you'll have a hangover and you'll be back to your regular mundane job or your you know, everyone's a little less beautiful in the morning or everyone's a little less excited the next day. Um, and I think almost subconsciously, I realized that that was something I found really interesting and I wanted to be able to write this book that is about a pair of brothers who start a restaurant with these really high-minded ideals, but then 
the younger of the two brothers, the closer and closer he gets to uh, to this sort of world of wealth and glamour and uh, pleasure, the more he sort of loses his initial ethical ideas for how a restaurant should work and the more he becomes sort of seduced by greed and luxury. So the relationship between a world of restaurants which is really pleasurable and fun and enjoyable giving way to a world in which, uh, you know, we wake up in the harsh light of day and we have a hangover and we have bills to pay and mm. you have a business to run, uh, for me, is a really interesting dynamic. I think uh, the book has also come out at a very interesting time um, because just at the moment that they were going back with restaurants opening again after being closed for a while and we find ourselves in the UK at least, uh, with a bit of a hospitality shortage or people struggling to fill roles in hospitality because a lot of people during this time period have moved or gone through changes of career for various reasons. And now in the past few weeks, we're starting to see something which I definitely realize in your, in your book, um, there are elements and themes of that where this, uh, chef has moved from, it's set in the the start of the book set in the Highlands or the Islands? Yeah, in the Islands. Yeah, in the Islands. And he's working at a hotel, quite quiet, but passionate very passionate chef, loves his job, but probably doesn't have to deal with these kind of the, the this inner city life of running a high end restaurant. Um but as you said, you succumb to all these kind of uh, things that happen because of quote unquote the tradition of restaurants. And we've got the situation now where uh, people are starting to call out this work environment and toxic culture that's happening in uh, restaurants very close to where we're recording this um, this interview. Um, so one of the ones that's being uh, called out quite a bit is the kitchen uh, in Edinburgh and a very well-known chain of uh, restaurants and very well-known chef. And it's quite funny, not funny, ha-ha, um, because the world of, I mean, the world of food and drink and the world of food and drink media are so intertwined that they kind of help protect each other. And for a long time, uh, everyone's known. I mean, it's quite common knowledge. Everyone knows that people, in, we see a bit on TV with your Gordon Ramsay's and stuff of people being abusive in the kitchen. And we've all, we made a, we made a, culture out of it you know people watch those shows and laughed at Gordon Ramsay being a horrible person to his staff and he's still uh, but we all know what happens and yet nothing's changed and finally the past few weeks um, that's kind of started to come out a bit and yeah I thought it was quite interesting you mentioning that um, that this chef from you know the outside world has succumbed to these pressures because I'm sure that's the case for a lot of these chefs and I mean I can't say if they're inherently right or wrong or good people, but I don't think they got into the restaurant industry to think I cannot wait to treat my employees like absolute hell. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was a really important and really interesting character arc. So our protagonist in the book, Tulip, uh, starts his restaurant with these high-minded ideals of growing wholesome organic food. Uh, And then when the restaurant's... uh, stumbles across a new species of mushroom that grows on his brother's farm and it becomes this addictively delicious uh, sort of uh, sort of perfect food that the diners keep returning to. He becomes more and more seduced by becoming wealthier and wealthier and wanting to open more and more outlets and sort of becoming more and more inauthentic to his original vision of how the restaurant should run. And, and it's the, the pressure to you know, continue to climb in this sort of um, terrible capitalistic net and also maybe his own sort of weak moral compass that leads him to become uh, essentially a horrible boss. You know, we've all, well, certainly I remember as a waiter having the the horrible Catch-22 situation where, like, the duty manager says, like, oh, yeah, of course, go and take your break now. And you go outside and, you know, uh, go outside and get some fresh air. And then the manager comes out and they're like, what are you doing outside? How dare you take time off? And, you know, you get trapped in this situation and, that's the sort of that's the sort of um, monofocused sort of uh, lack of moral compass that I wanted to be the uh, sort of downfall of the main character in this book, and to show the way that his like pursuit of of wealth and glamour and his pursuit of fame uh, 
becomes his downfall in a way that I think that um, you know even if even if we as as readers haven't like been through that arc firsthand, that idea of like clinging to desire for fame or to sort of jealousy is is quite universal. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a, a part in the book where I, I just saw his character on the on the front. Is his name Rats? Is that mm-hmm. yeah, one of the like KP. What his yeah, sort of KP who's been uh, fired from every job he's had and yeah. is sort of like you know right at the bottom of the kitchen. But there's a part in this where he gets fired from uh, the book. It's like a, but it's almost he do, does essentially nothing wrong. It's mm. more just that the the main character is having a bad time and yeah, takes yeah. out yeah. on that which I think is is so often the case with these abuse stories we hear in, in kitchens where the pressure is not to justify at all but the pressure is so high that it's almost like you can see someone being like I'm stressed and angry and anxious and feeling all this stuff but I'm just going to point to a random person who's the youngest and least experienced person and just take out, take it out on them because that's just the way it goes yeah. and uh yeah, it's a sad thing that um, it's almost celebrated. And uh, like I've, I saw uh, Tom Kitchen the other day talking about how these it was tra- like traditional quote unquote uh, ways of working in a kitchen. It's like just because something's tradition doesn't mean it's yeah. right. As they say, tradition is just peer pressure from de- from dead people. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what's what's next for you? Uh, so I'm um, uh, going to eat in as many restaurants as I possibly can now that they're open again. That's my that's my number one objective at the moment. Uh, in a graphic novel sense, in a creative yeah. sense, um, I've started working on a new story, though it's in its most sort of embryonic stage at the moment. So I don't quite know where it'll uh, where it'll go. I won't give any details away yet, but it'll be hopefully exciting and dramatic. Uh, in quite a different vein from the delicacy. So we'll see how that all pans out. Other than that, I'm always busy with editorial work because as I say, there's a this nice balance where you spend years working on a graphic novel and then wait till this time well it's in production for it to finally come out. Whereas with an editorial job you do a drawing and it appears in the newspaper the next day and it's so quick. So still drawing basically all the time. And then could go back to what you said about eating out and uh, visiting all these pubs and restaurants again. Uh, you have both lived in London. We've both lived in Edinburgh, and uh, I've not had the pleasure of living in Lyon. But are there any specific types of food and drink that you enjoy? I mean, I know that you've also been to Asia a bit, and you've, you're definitely you've explored that kind of food as well. What what, what are your your favourite foods? Oh, that's such a big question. I know it's a big know, question. An enormous, enormous, difficult question. What's the What's the food that makes you inspired to draw? You know, well, I suppose one of the, especially with the Hong Kong connection, my wife, uh, Kat O'Neill, who is also an amazing illustrator, um, is half Hong Kong Chinese, and we had the pleasure of like living in Hong Kong with her Hong Kong family and getting very close to them. Uh, and they introduced me to a whole world of especially sort of dim sum, but all sorts of Cantonese cooking, which is really exciting. And I just remember the first time we went to Hong Kong being introduced to these things that, uh, you know, I'd never, I'd never eaten chicken's feet before. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, being introduced to so many really exciting food experiences. So I always have, um, you know, a lot of love for, uh, uh, for food from Hong Kong and that sort of connection with my uh, extended family out there. Um, I think as well, I've always loved uh, French food, which is why living in Lyon was such a nice uh, treat. And there's one particular restaurant that I always want to return to uh, in Lyon called Los Anquibois, uh, which is a sort of Japanese-French fusion restaurant, which is just absolutely fantastic. So, um, you know, that's always one of these places that stands out in my mind. There must be certain ways of cooking and certain foods that are more, not more interesting to draw, but more engaging you know things like wok cooking cooking in a wok is i i see when i think about your illustration style something about someone cooking something in a wok with lots of uh lots of uh fire is a lot more than someone uh stirring a pot of risotto exactly you know there's a lot more energy in certain styles of food that must be more interesting to for you to draw absolutely i think um i was very lucky in producing the delicacy of being invited into a few different restaurant kitchens um and getting to draw cooks as they're working which is really exciting i love drawing people in motion and i also always love uh going to restaurants 
but have an open kitchen so you can watch the chefs and mm. sort of se- secretively drawing them in my sketchbook. Uh, so in that sense, you know, these of these classic sort of, um, you know, teppanyaki restaurants where the chef is flipping things with fire all around him and that sort of thing is, you know, was really impressive to draw. But I think in terms of the actual food as it appears on the plates, it's similar in a way to food photography where, you know, these sorts of rules of like distinctive colours, distinctive lines, uh, clear elements that are beautifully arranged um, makes for a good image of food, even though that, of course, has no impact of how uh, uh, of how the food tastes. Uh, my wife and I often sort of not laugh about, but sort of sort of comment on. You see people um, taking photos of food they've cooked and putting it on Instagram or putting it on Facebook. Uh, and it's sometimes, you know, some of our friends will make very very amazing, beautiful food. And sometimes you see something like a a plate of macaroni cheese, which I'm sure tastes amazing. But if you take a photograph, it's so difficult to make macaroni cheese look good in a photograph mm. because it's it's like beige coloured and it's a yeah. lump, it's a blob, you know. Um, so that was an interesting challenge for me as well uh, in drawing the food pages in the book was to make everything look exciting and sort of use techniques that you can use in illustration that would be impossible with a photograph to make the ingredients coming together in the plate uh, a sort of exciting dynamic composition. Yeah, totally. Because, um, yeah, to, to kind of go into that a bit more, we've, we've featured someone on the... The magazine in the past, uh, more recently actually, uh, Anna Tobias, um, who has a restaurant uh, in London called Cafe Deco, which is um, Matthew, has had the very uh, nice pleasure over the past few weeks to visit. Um, but Anna's food is very proudly described as being very beige. And I noticed that <laughs> uh, her own words uh, that it's just not the most picturesque foods. And we sent um, Sam Harris to take pictures and he did an amazing job. But when I think about the photos he's taken, it's more the space and the and the portraits he took rather than the food itself, whereas his work with St. John is very focused on the food. Um, and yeah, there's definitely certain things, like even this morning, uh, my girlfriend and I were discussing uh, a picture on Instagram by uh, the food writer and I guess yeah food writer uh, Rachel Roddy and uh, it was a picture of some beans and pasta type thing and she was like did you see that thing that Rachel Roddy posted it doesn't look great and I was like yeah I bet it tastes so good though it's like kind of like certain st- cuisines like your rustic I mean rustic Italian food is just like it's beige yeah you know I think that's always a big challenge in image making you know is to is to you can know something to be exciting. And I mean, going back to this idea that like illustrating, and I'm sure a photographer would say, taking photographs as well, is there's a big element of kind of communication and conversation in there. You can know that a food is exciting and a food is delicious, but you have to create an image that communicates that deliciousness to, to a viewer, um, which is, yeah, a huge, a huge challenge. And I think especially for a... Um, you know, as, a, as an illustrator, we're very like, as illustrators are very lucky in our medium because we, um, you know, the, the blank page is just an empty space and you can put anything anywhere. Any mark can go anywhere on the page. Whereas if you're a photographer, you're sort of cruelly imprisoned by the laws of reality and you have to, you have to, you know, photons have to reflect off the subject of what you're photographing and they have to make it into the camera in one way or another. So, you know, in a way as an illustrator, we have a lot more freedom to, to make exciting images about delicious food. Totally. And also the chef, you know, we could have sent uh, to take photos and it just so happened that the day that we sent it could be horrible lighting. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, even the best photographers in the world struggle with crap lighting. And uh, but yeah, I've noticed in the book, I was just like, oh, here we go. An example in the book where you've kind of dissected ingredients in this kind of way here where yeah. you've taken a plate of food that might not look amazing on the plate, but you've kind of made it look like it's popping up off the plate and uh, yeah there's definitely elements and things that you could use or you know in this case we were drawing the kind of the aroma of the foods coming out from the from the kitchen in ways that couldn't be captured on yeah absolutely so the page we've got here is um, we're looking at a plate of uh, grilled mackerel with um, uh, with leeks uh, broccoli artichoke parsnip puree bread but they're sort of floating off the plate, as, as Johnny says, and especially, you know, the texture of the, the skin of mackerel is so beautiful. It's, yeah, of course. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to, to draw or to photograph. But um, yeah, it definitely gave me this freedom to just make the, 
make the page as exciting and dynamic as I wanted it to be, rather than uh, you know, rather than sort of the difficulty of arranging uh, a complicated plate of food to be photographed. But I'm sure actually it must be very frustrating for uh, frustrating for chefs and more and more in this sort of day and age of Instagram where you're under an obligation not just to make the food delicious but to make it photograph well because mm. you know so much of the word of mouth recommendation of restaurants comes from oh I saw a great a great looking plate of food on Instagram that looks really delicious I'll go and check out the restaurant so it, you know it must be difficult and frustrating if you do find yourself making a delicious beige coloured plate of food and you know it is a challenge to sort of uh, advertise that in a way um, and in a way it's really unfair that like uh, talent there's a sort of superficiality that like talented chefs might make delicious food but they're also under an obligation to make the delicious food uh, pretty for social media so that people are sort of allured yeah, use social media is like an, an advertising medium totally it's like how much of this stuff is necessary in the play mm-hmm. and how much of it is there just as to make it look good yeah um, like um, yeah, no, you you go into that in the book as a little bit as well with the kind of hype culture and the Instagram culture of food, whereby um, they okay, don't don't want to go too much into the storyline of the book, but the giving anything away, but they hire uh, a maitre d who's very good at um, promoting the restaurant and getting the right people in the restaurant and and to an extent uh, calling the shots. Yeah. Uh, I, I really liked the idea that as the protagonist Tulip sort of follows this downward spiral from having this like wholesome, authentic restaurant to begin with, to then becoming very, very rich, but sort of compromising his moral principles. Uh, I liked the idea that the restaurant becomes less and less about the, you know, deliciousness of the food itself and becomes more and more about the... Um, it's just a name and it's a place to be and it's a place that people will, get, people will spend fortunes to just be kind of seen in this restaurant and to be sort of, uh, you know, to, to take selfies and to be like seen by others and to be seen on social media going to this restaurant because he's a fashionable name rather than because, mm. you know, rather than because he's necessarily an amazing cook. In his book, Medium Raw, Anthony Bourdain writes about uh, working as a cook in a restaurant in, I think, in the Caribbean. That's a restaurant that caters only for sort of the rich children of oligarchs and, uh, you know, these millionaires, um, and says that the food they're serving in the restaurants is just atrocious. Any any slightly savvy middle-class person in any city would look at it and go, what the hell are you doing charging me hundreds of dollars for this? And yet these sort of, uh, this sort of oligarchy will pay, like, absurd money for really, really bad food because they're just being seen in this Caribbean islands, in this fashionable restaurant with fashion with a fashionable name over the door so um there's definitely a, a side which i imagine if you're a if you're a restaurant owner is a very frustrating part of the restaurant industry where there's like an obligation to be known and fashionable as well as an obligation to make good food yeah it's a shame I mean, i've definitely been guilty of it in the past london i mean living in london was so 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 part of it to be like oh where'd you hear about this restaurant instagram yeah, yeah. it sucks because, but at the same time it's like how how do you you have, you have to get involved yeah yeah you know yeah, that's yeah. where all people are hearing stuff now people are booking tables via Instagram yeah, yeah. and you know it's it's all changed up and you kind of have to join in on the on the on the whole thing so. yeah and I think I think it's something that to an extent it affects every part of our lives you know that there's all in all cultures whether you're talking about restaurants whether you're talking about art culture or you know music there's a there's this idea that that we're follow we we want to follow what's fashionable and maybe relieve ourselves of the obligation to ask whether we really enjoy things or not you know there's no shortage of throughout all of our history really it's not just a social media phenomenon but like throughout all of our history there have been people who are uh who are popular and fashionable and people pursue their work because it's because it's fashionable or because it's sort of lucrative to invest in uh and it's not necessarily the best work or, you know, one as a viewer shouldn't feel an obligation to like something just because it's it's in vogue. But we do in uh, in all sorts of walks of life kind of follow things that are, that are fashionable and in vogue. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, there's some of the best meals I've had in recent times, recent years have been in places that aren't getting written about, you yeah. know, places like, for example, in Tollcross here in Edinburgh, a place called Taxidi, a little Greek place right between Von Tu and a few other places and ended up there just by chance once and had one of the best meals I've ever had. I was yeah. just like, 
I don't think I would have ever read about this. And because they're not really on the Instagram, they're not a cool place, just like a family run, that's the vibe I get. They prepare a Facebook page, um, but they're not really playing into the the whole kind of modern food scene. And uh, it's both sad that they're not getting the credit they deserve, but it's also quite humbling and uh, quite refreshing that there are these kind of hidden gems. Yeah, hidden gems that aren't, you know, there are people, you know, presumably hopefully making food because they love making food and not doing it to uh, to pursue fame and not doing it to become Instagram famous. Over the past 18 months or so, you have, as the rest of us have, been living in various stages of lockdown, whatever lockdown we're on now. Uh, and as with all people, it's affected their working life in various ways. Um, as a self-employed freelance illustrator, how has that affected your day-to-day? You, you share a flat with your wife, who's also an illustrator. Would that have been the dynamic previously? Yeah, so in that sense, we were really lucky because... Uh, the one part of our life that wasn't really affected was work because we have a studio in our flat. We've always worked in the, almost always worked in the same studio. So um, we have a very sort of comfortable working from home dynamic. Uh, funnily enough, actually quite a few sort of friends or relatives uh, around the start of lockdown when everyone suddenly went to moving, working from home uh, were sort of phoning us and asking like, you, you've always worked from home. How do you do it? How do you not constantly raid the fridge? How do you not constantly get distracted? <laughs> So, yeah, so I think in that sense, um, lockdown was okay. I mean, you know, as an illustrator, you you sit down at your desk in the morning and you sit and you draw. Um, it was actually really, I don't want to say a blessing because in so many ways it was an absolute nightmare. But actually in terms of finishing the delicacy, it came kind of the right time because I just had about maybe 100 pages left, left to illustrate. And suddenly being robbed of all distractions when I'm at, you know, at that point when you're sort of, 75% of the way through a process and your energy is just starting to flag and you're just starting to like hit a wall a little bit suddenly being told don't leave your house sit at home draw pictures was actually this boost I needed to really in a really focused way do the last 100 pages of the book and and get them all finished and get them all um, uh, sent off to my editor and everything so in a strictly working sense lockdown was fine in every other single sense it was horrible yeah. as it was for everyone i mean you know fortunately we we're very lucky to like you know touch wood our health has been fine and that sort of thing but um i particularly like uh as i've mentioned going out to restaurants going out to bars going to parties socializing seeing people uh and you know i think it's it was quite wearing on me not being able to go out and you know not being able to go to parties and having to cancel holidays and that sort of thing um but you know as i say uh in general, you know, we were, our health was fine and, you know, we've been okay otherwise. So yeah, so lockdown was a mixed bag, but uh, could have been worse, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I guess in terms of other uh, aspects of things being affected, you, I know you from us hanging out that you love to draw things in your sketchbook. And I remember there's times we would go to the park and uh, there'd just be no, no one to draw yeah well so much of my um of my sort of basic research in a way is just going to bars and restaurants and sitting at sitting at a bar with a sketchbook in my lap and just drawing everything drawing people eating drawing people drinking drawing people hanging out and so suddenly not having that side of my work was really surreal and as you say we go to the park we go to the skate park and you know it was better when when people were allowed to socialize outdoors again it was fine because you could draw people hanging out outside draw people skateboarding doing all sorts of things so so that was a bit of a relief for me. But yeah, like being suddenly isolated from the world was uh, in that artistic sense, suddenly quite sort of, um, you know, quite sort of um, disconcerting. Yeah, because your work features people quite heavily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are just, that's just the world. The <laughs> yeah. world features people, you know, some would say a little too heavily. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things I know that you and Kat, your partner, your wife, have we we've discussed in the past is... One of the things that illustration as a, especially in an editorial sense, is very important is promoting yourself, but also the business side of it and working with clients. And that's something that we've talked about that people don't really think about in terms of illustration. It's not just about, um, not just about the drawing. It's also, you know, working with people and, uh, the demands or 
requirements, I guess, of the the the, the editor or the publisher or whoever. How did you find that coming out of school and uh, having to deal with that side of the industry? I think in general, I mean, I I think I found that I settled into it quite naturally, as did uh, as did Cat. I think it's interesting because it's just a skill set that is that's very, very different from the skill set of drawing. And there's no shortage of people in the world who just draw the most beautiful, amazing pictures, but then don't necessarily maybe either have the confidence or the interest or the sort of comfort to be able to reach out to clients or reach out to art directors or reach out to publishers and show them their beautiful work. Or maybe, you know, don't feel comfortable working with deadlines or don't feel comfortable, um, you know, working to a brief or something like that. So it's a it it can be complicated sort of making that leap between having both skill sets you know and then equally there are people there are people in the art world who are uh, you know not, maybe actually not the most exciting artists maybe their work is a little uh, a little run of the mill but they're great at reaching out to clients and they're great at satisfying clients' demand and they're great at running the business side of things so you do get both ends of the spectrum um, I think it's a bit complicated with art schools because. To an extent, the resources of how to learn that sort of professional practice are there. Like you can, you can sort of connect with professionals when you're an art student, and you can connect with all sorts of resources. But I think that you need to, um, uh, you know, one needs to be sort of active in pursuing that. You know, educating yourself. Maybe sometimes art schools have the resources to teach students about professional practice, but can be a little bit passive about putting those those skills across to students, especially because uh, as art schools become increasingly sort of like uh, academified, there is professional value in teaching students professional practice, but there's not really necessarily measurable academic value. So it tends to be sort of shunted down the list of priorities a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, I was lucky in feeling fairly confident in sending my work out to clients and getting my first few commissions and things. But I do know that for a lot of people, it's a it's a complicated process. I guess it's a little bit as well, like dealing with people in any industry. I mean, if you think about people who, for example, write like uh, music for beds or music, copyright free music that people can use freely, it yeah. might not seem that the most amazing job in the world, but it's probably they're probably very good at just being like, here's some music to go with this TV show yeah. versus working with maybe kind of more musicians who work used to working with recording albums and taking their own time and getting things out, trying to get something like that to come up with something to a deadline might not be. Yeah. And I think you'd see it, you know, there's even a, a parallel in the food and drink industry. You know, there's a lot of people who are really impressive, really great home cooks who can make an amazing, you know, uh, do a family, you know, do a family meal for twelve people, and it's yeah. ten courses, and it's just incredible. But those same people wouldn't necessarily enjoy at all working in a restaurant, and mm. you know, like you don't want to sit down and cut a hundred onions and then you know make a hundred of the same meal to yeah. to order and stuff. Um, and I'm sure any you know professional uh, you know professional cooks will will really appreciate that uh, that similarity. There's a difference between doing doing the same task in a personal sense and doing it in a professional sense, you know. Um, and that's something that I, I find myself, like I love drawing, uh, but when I was a teenager, drawing was my hobby. And now drawing is my job and I love my job, but it's still work. And I still mm. like, at the end of the day, I, you know, get up from my desk and I do not want to do any more drawing. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> you know. Yeah, actually uh, brings me on to to get towards the end of this interview but uh, one of the last pieces you illustrated for us uh, for Pellicle was by Holly Stevens on uh, catering and it's funny because what we do, what you just said that there's a big difference between cooking and catering yeah absolutely you know, cooking food is very different to catering to people and the demands of which that requires it's not just about cooking the amazing food it's about prep work yeah in fact so much of it's just about prep work and timing and yeah it's it, it, it's it's not just about cooking something delicious but it's about cooking something reliable I think mm. it's about cooking in a sort of efficient way that gets scaled up to a you know feeding a crowd of 100 people and is done on time and it's done in an efficient way rather than just in a sort of 
uh, take your time and put her around kind of way. Yeah, or, or even just like what stuff would be categorized as boring things like ordering ingredients. Like it sounds so mundane, but it's like, I mean, working in the brewing industry, it's so important. I mean, like staying on top of things we you need. For example, we're packaging beer tomorrow at the brewery. Did I order? Did I order gas? Like yeah. It, but that's that could be a matter of whether or not we we, we are able to do our job tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And when you get into the industry, sure, as a home brewer, it's like oh, I can't wait to make my own recipes and do this. It's like realistically, that's not going to be what makes or breaks your brewery. Yeah, what is 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 remembering to order things. Yeah, and yeah. In a way, that's the sort of interesting balance of of life and professionalism, where there's no sort of people saying brewing who might have great ambitions for amazing recipes that they want to develop but as you say what makes or breaks them as professionals is uh getting getting all the ingredients ordered in time running the business in an efficient way in a, uh in a way that sort of fulfills orders and keeping up with client demand and keeping up with all these sorts of things and i think it's exactly the same uh to be a professional artist you have to on the one hand be inspired and be curious and and pursue the kinds of drawings that excite you but at the same time you do have to be realistic about uh just managing your time and pursuing you know uh fulfilling deadlines and fulfilling client briefs and 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 keeping a good professional rapport with your clients and that sort of thing um there's an interesting sort of uh yeah balance in that sense so yeah james's book the delicacy is out now um it is a really really good read uh, i thoroughly enjoyed reading it and as maybe not as much as James enjoyed drawing it, but uh, James, you feel free to plug your book and tell us where we can get this fine book. Yep. So the delicacy is uh, out now, published by Top Shelf Comics, and you can get it literally anywhere. Uh, from probably, <laughs> who knows? Ask them. Uh, yeah, get it from um, you know a, a brick and mortar, a brick and mortar bookshop. Get it online. Support a local business. Buy from a giant corporation. Do whatever you like. Just read it and enjoy it. <laughs> And any hot takes, any kind of Joe Rogan style controversial topics you want to bring up? Oh, well, right at the end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is, uh, you know, there's, that will never last in the UFC. That's my only thought. There we go. Uh, <laughs> it's always good to end on a, contra- a controversy. Uh, so thank you very much, James. Yeah, I think we can read that better. Yeah, no, I'd just like to say, um, you know, I hope everyone stays safe in the pandemic. And I hope that uh, especially people who work so hard in the hospitality industry, uh, all those millions of um, cooks, chefs, waiters, uh, anyone in the restaurant industry, really. Um, you know, I hope we uh, spring back into life soon and that, uh, you know, we can return to this really exciting, uh, vivacious restaurant culture that Britain has. Uh, the sooner the better. What an enjoyable conversation that was. It's wonderful to hear two really good friends talk in depth about a subject that really matters to them. And I'm really looking forward to picking up a copy of The Delicacy. So congratulations to James on that. And I look forward to commissioning some more illustration from you very soon. Now, before I say goodbye, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of folks. First, our longtime sponsors, Hot Burns and Black. They sponsor our website, but I just want to give them a nod because their support lets us keep that website going. And I'm eternally grateful. So thanks to them. And thank you to our amazing Patreon supporters who give us a monthly or yearly donation. And we spend that money on creating content like the articles on our website and like this podcast. We'd love for you to join them. Now, Something that's really important to me is that the content we produce will always be free to consume. There'll never be a paywall. We think that it should be accessible to all because some people are not as able to pay for content as others. So the people who do choose to pay from a pound a month are keeping Pellicle free for everyone. And something that's really important to me is making sure the rates we pay are competitive. What I would like to do is get us over the £3,000 a month mark When we do that, that means I will be able to increase the rates we pay the writers, photographers and illustrators who contribute to us, meaning we are paying the same as major publications and newspapers. That's really important to me as a freelancer as well. So do go to patreon.com forward slash pellicalmag if you're able to give us a monthly donation. And thank you to those of you who already do. Now, as you can hear with my voice, I'm struggling a bit, so I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to say thank you so much for tuning into the Pellicle podcast. 
I'll be back in a few weeks with an episode about my book, Modern British Beer. Until then, have a good week, everyone.